The best way to recover from playing sports is a long, luxurious night's sleep. Our friends at Mattress Firm have thousands of stores and prices in your ballpark. It's a game-winning combination, and it's a team that's impossible not to cheer for. Mattress Firm is hooking up listeners with 10% off when you visit mattressfirm.com slash podcast and plug in the code podcast10. Score a 10 out of 10 on a brand new bed by taking 10% off with code podcast10 at mattressfirm.com slash podcast. Valar Podcastus, all men must podcast. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. As always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, and it's print arm the ringer.com where you can find Eagles Day to my great delight. Uh, all things Philadelphia Eagles, as well as Jonathan Sharks, who you might know from our basketball coverage, has dipped his toes in the waters of baseball to write about Robinson Cano and his contract. But Today, we've got a jam-packed show for you. Leading off, as always, is Zach Cram. So let's get to Zach without any further delay. All right, we're leading off, as always, with Zach Cram of The Ringer. Zach, how you doing? Hello. Good to be back. Well, it's it's weird to be back at today's topic because I sort of thought that when the when the Dodgers uh, traded for Manny Machado and and John Axford at the deadline, they were sort of rounding into form. They would sort of take control of the National League West, and that has very emphatically not happened. Uh, so I am calling upon you to to untangle this weird web of of nonsense that's that's uh, going on out west. Yeah, the same thought struck me. I know you're talking to Ben later about the AL West, and we've been talking about that division basically all season because it's been changing so much. But the NL West, I know we talked about the Dodgers early in the season when they were struggling, but then they seemed to write the ship with Max Muncy and Ross Stripling and Matt Kemp, and then they traded for Machado. And like you, I kind of assumed the division race was over, but since they traded for Machado at the All-Star break, the Dodgers have a losing record. They are now in, I guess, technically third place, basically tied for second with Colorado, a game back of the Diamondbacks. And I guess the first thing I'll say about this is just two-team races are exciting in baseball, uh, but they're not that uncommon. A real true three-team race is really rare and so much more fun, I think, just because there are so many different permutations and you have those three teams playing each other so much. I'll get into the schedule a bit later, but each of these teams has two series against the other one still. So there's just a lot of baseball to be played specifically between these teams the rest of the way. And I think it'll make for the most fun division race the rest of the season. So the big question with the Dodgers, and we'll get to the the Diamondbacks and the Rockies. And I guess like if, you know, Ben and I are going to talk about the Seattle Mariners who are only a half game closer to the division lead than the Giants. So I I guess you could talk yourself this in or talk yourself into this being a four team race if you really wanted to. Um, the bullpen, it's it seems like no matter how much they spend on in terms of prospects or or money, how much they spend on relief pitching and how much they how many surplus starting pitchers they have at, at a given time, there's never enough. Somehow Pedro Baez always winds up being in the most uh uh, crucial situations and always winds up blowing them. So, you know, Kenley Jansen has had his uh, his heart scare after going to Colorado. Obviously, that's got bigger implications in baseball, and he's out for the next month. But who do you trust in that bullpen right now, and what can be done to to fix it? When we talked at the trade deadline, I expressed some surprise that the Dodgers, I think they added Dylan Floro, but that's not really the name acquisition we expected them. Uh, they, Cal State Fullerton <laughs> legend Dylan Flora. They recently moved uh, Ross Stripling and Kenta Maeda to successful starters to the bullpen, where both of them have been good before. Stripling, even earlier this season, was a member of the bullpen. Kenta Maeda was a rather dominant reliever in the playoffs last year. So I think those two arms should theoretically help stabilize a bit. They also, like with Chris Taylor and Max Muncy in the lineup, have found at least one dominant bullpen guy and Caleb Ferguson, who I admit I had never really heard of before the season, but in the bullpen this year, he he made some starts, but since he moved to the bullpen has been one of the most effective relievers in baseball. He has a 
1.14 ERA in 23 and two-thirds innings and with 28 strikeouts. So he could help stabilize the back end. I think Maeda and Stripling might help a bit, but it's really the Dodgers, as they have been for the last few years, are going to have to rely on this depth. Julio Urias could theoretically come back at some point. So I'm not as concerned about the bullpen as I am just, I think the Diamondbacks and Rockies aren't that bad either, and they pose formidable competition. So let's move on to, and you know, you can afford to move, this is the last thing I'll say about the Dodgers, although I wanted to just throw out, no, this is not the last thing about I'll, I'll say about the Dodgers. The so one thing, if they're getting guys like Hyunjin Ryu back and, and Kershaw is healthy and they're managing Walker Bueller's usage so that he'll be available to really go full throttle down the stretch and in the playoffs, uh, that gives them the the luxury of moving guys like Maeda and Stripling to the bullpen. Um, the other thing I'll say is, it's, is there sort of a half-serious MVP case for Yasmani Grandal? There was a couple it's years okay ago. If you he, don't think so. He got one vote, right? I think probably not just because you have guys like Arenado and Freddie Freeman and even Matt Carpenter, who's been the best hitter in baseball over the last couple of months. Grandal has been really good, but... I don't know if he is. Is he up there in war close enough to make that a real case? I mean, you'd have to you'd have to go to warp and war has had war has taken a beating as a uh, as like the one size fits all measuring stick just because the defensive numbers have been so weird this year. And um, we've run into some some strength of competition issues. But, you know, as I say this, even as uh, Jacob DeGrom is probably my NL MVP right now, but Grandal is is been a guy who's taken a, a beating sort of in terms of perception it's a very strange reputation he's got you know with the mix of, of good framing and and iffy other defense and but he's an off, absolute offensive force as a catcher and that's I, I think that's one thing that really doesn't get enough attention this uh, is actually the, uh, this is actually surprising Grandall's warp which is the war metric that includes catcher framing he's projected for 5.4 wins for uh, between what he has now and the rest of the season, that would tie what he had last mm. year and is lower than 2016. So maybe Grandal's just been well, uh, perennially underrated. Well, I think he's, yeah, I, I think that's closer to the case. All right, so let's let's move on to um, to Arizona. My big question about Arizona is who is their best pitcher right now? Is it Patrick Corbin? Probably, maybe. I feel like that's what I thought you were going to say. Do you think it's Granky? I think it might be Granky. I. I'm still waiting on Robbie Ray, and I know, like I know he hasn't pitched well this season a- a- after he's come back from injury. But I think that Ray is the guy who I'd still probably feel most comfortable with in, in an elimination game. I mean, this is mostly they've got. I don't know how much you trust Clay Buckholtz in the in the playoffs, but they've still got that depth, even with. Uh, Shelby Miller and Taiwan Walker on the shelf. I think there was a lot of concern with those guys getting hurt and Zach Godley sort of regressing that that they would lose that that rotation depth, but they've still got it and and they've needed it because the the lineup has been like this is I think is their biggest weakness is that David Peralta has been great. Um, you know AJ Pollock's been good when when healthy, but like they're like the the Jake Lamb situation this year between ineffectiveness and injury has just been been brutal for that lineup. One of the fun things about all the, I guess, surprise contenders this season is how we can group them together is they all seem to be relying on at least one retread veteran starter who's experiencing really shocking success. You have Anibal Sanchez with Atlanta has a 2.83 RA. Edwin Jackson with Oakland has a 2.48 ERA. And Buckle, who you mentioned, in 11 starts with Arizona has a 2.67 ERA, which is actually the lowest among all Diamondback starters right now. I, I certainly don't think he's the best Diamondback starter, but it is kind of fun to see these players who were important five years ago making strides mm-hmm. in real pennant races now. Uh, with the Diamondbacks offense, I think kind of similar to Colorado, which we'll talk about in a minute. It has a strong core, like you said, with Peralta, AJ Pollock still good, Paul Goldschmidt still good, but the back half is leaves something wanting. Um, Eduardo Escobar has been fine since coming over at the trade deadline with a 119 OPS plus, so I think he's a good addition. But the real issue with the Diamondbacks, again, like with the Rockies, who we'll talk about in a minute, is they have a really difficult schedule the rest of the way. The Dodgers 
have been struggling over the last couple of weeks, but every game they've played in that span has been against a playoff contender. That's kind of the slate that the Diamondbacks and Rockies will face over the next month and a half. They have two of the hardest schedules remaining in the major leagues. The Dodgers have sort of on the easier end, middle of the pack. So if there's a difference there, I think that could be it. Uh, but on the other hand, who knows? I mean, the Diamondbacks have owned the Dodgers over the last two seasons, playoffs aside. So maybe that'll help them in the stretch run. I realize now, as I was mentioning uh, the Diamondbacks, few really good hitters. I didn't mention Paul Goldschmidt. So I know about Paul Goldschmidt before we we get letters. Um, the What you mentioned about the schedule and facing other contenders, that strikes me as sort of an interesting heuristic way to to view how legit you think a contender is. Because you think about uh, the Phillies having an easy schedule and that strikes me as good for them because I don't, I think they're good. I just don't trust them to really put the hammer down on Atlanta or uh, or Milwaukee if you want to look at the, the wild card race or, or Washington. You know, I don't, I don't trust them to really beat up on the other good teams and take advantage of those of those direct competitions. I think they'd be better off sort of feasting on on some of the teams lower in the table. And, you know, whether you view that tough schedule as um as a potential downside or as an opportunity, I think says a lot about just your your knee-jerk reaction for um for what you think about each one of these teams. Which leads us perfectly to the Rockies, I think, because I think just on talent alone and the order I would pick them to win the National League West, I'd put the Rockies last out of this trio. They have, first of all, a negative run differential. So there's, a, a, I guess, a bit of Seattle Mariners vibes here and how they've been overperforming their underlying statistics. But the Rockies are kind of a more extreme version of Arizona, at least on offense, where Nolan Arenado is an MVP candidate. Trevor Story's been good. And after that, it's kind of a question mark. Charlie Blackman has regressed mightily from last year. Yeah, and he's not been Charlie Blackman the way that we've come to expect. And currently on their entire 25-man roster, they only have four players with a better-than-average batting line adjusted for ballpark. So it's kind of the Rockies that we've seen in recent years where if you just look at their run scored, it's okay, but that's because they play at Coors Field and it's the reverse with the pitching where the pitching has actually been carrying this team, which is somewhat of a wrinkle for a Colorado squad. Yeah, and we talked, I think uh, Ben and I talked a, a few weeks ago about the duality of of Kyle Freeland and John Gray, and I think both of them are pretty good. And, you know, they, they can hang, and the bullpen sort of is what it is. I, you know, I don't know what the, the answer is because they spent so much. And guys like Wade Davis and, and Brian Shaw have been inconsistent. And, you know, Sung Wano has been okay, but that – but that's not, you know, that's not trading for Andrew Miller, you know. Um, so the bullpen is still an area of concern, but I'll say this. It's an area of concern for pretty much everybody at this point. So I think baseball is more interesting when when the bullpens are less reliable because, you know, we saw just last night um, you know, the we had Juris Familia almost give that game away uh, that Oakland Seattle game. Um, the Nationals had their second bullpen implosion in as many days. So it's, it, it leads to some fun, chaotic baseball, but probably uh, uh, there are some, some Rockies fans who are going to have high blood pressure as a, a result of, of what's going on over the next month. Um, what I was going to say is they've got Arenado stories hitting really well. They they're getting probably more than I expected out of Carlos Gonzalez at, at this point. What's really killing them is Ian Desmond and Gerardo Parra have not been good out of two positions where you really expect to, to, uh, to rack up some, some offensive uh, production at first base and left field. And the past, I don't know, week, maybe 10 days, we're seeing a lot more of David Dahl and Ryan McMahon in those, in those positions. And I think that's something that Bud Black can do. Just move, move away from the, the vets who, you know, aren't really giving you much They're you know, there's sort of replacement level production from an offensive standpoint. And, you know, maybe Dahl and McMahon will be worse, but at least there's upside there. So that's something I'd like to see them and they're doing it more, but I'd like to see them continue to move even farther in that direction over the next, uh, over the next couple of weeks, just, and it, and even if you you look at it like if you're going to lose, I'd rather lose and sort of figure out what you got with the kids rather than play out the string with guys who, you know, I'd almost look at as sunk costs right now. 
John Gray, who you mentioned since uh, coming back from the minor leagues, which was obviously a big point of discussion. We talked about it on the podcast. Uh, In five starts since then, he has a 2.29 ERA. Opposing batters are hitting 177 against him. John Gray is still good. Uh, And this rotation, I mean, I, I think it's probably the worst of the three, but maybe if you look at these three teams and their sort of units in totality, I think the rotations of all three are are a team strength, which is not something I expected coming into the season. Yeah, it's, I mean, the the Rockies rotation's been sort of weird because you look at, I don't know which of those guys you you really trust, but the results have been fine. You know, and saying that this is a worst of the three is sort of... uh, praising with faint damnation because the I mean the Dodgers and and Diamondbacks probably have what two of the three or four best rotations in the National League so you know this is not the rotation is not a problem I would not look at that as a, a situation where you know this is not what Oakland or Seattle you know trying to to cobble together a rotation and like there's not a pitcher on on this staff as good as Aaron Nola but I might take this rotation one through four over Philadelphia's depending on which Zach Eflin and which Nick Pavetta you're getting on a on a given night. Um, so do you want to talk about the giants? Are they in this at all? Do you think that they're, that this is just the result of nobody running away from the division? I think five games doesn't sound like that much, but climbing over three teams is, is just huge. And that's the sort of thing that I think gets underrated when you're looking at uh, a team coming back from this kind of deficit this late in the season. I think so. I think the giants have interestingly discovered some, interesting young players like Derek Rodriguez has been a revelation in the rotation. Mm -hmm. Andrew Suarez has been pretty good, but I'm not sure if that will manifest in a real run this year. They haven't, they, I guess they've sort of been on the, on the fringes of the race for a while now, but I don't think they've put together the kind of sustained winning effort over two weeks. That makes me believe they'll be able to, like you said, leapfrog a few teams to get back in the race. Yeah. It sort of feels like an 80, 83 win team. And if that's probably where they're going to end up. And, you know, it's not out of the question that they, they get back into this. Cause you see teams uh, like you see a team that's five games back in, uh, in August, come back to make the playoffs or miss it by a game or two. Like that happens almost every year, but just climbing over three teams that I think have so much potential to really run away with this. I think that's probably going to be too much to ask. The baseball prospectus playoff odds right now have, the Dodgers had about a 50% chance of winning the division, and then Arizona at 33%, Colorado at 12%, and the Giants at 2%, which maybe is underestimating the Giants a little bit, but I think does speak to just that difficulty of when you have three teams who are playing each other, which guarantees them wins, it's difficult to make that climb. Yeah, I don't know. If anything, I think that might underrate Arizona. I, You know, get, gun to my head, i probably pick LA to win the division, but... Uh, you know, I I don't think Arizona is that far behind. And the fact that this is a conversation is fascinating in and of itself. The Dodgers have won five straight division titles. Uh, if they were to win a six, they'd become only the third club in the division era to do that, along with the turn of the century Braves and Yankees. So the fact that we're even talking about this is fun. And I think the entire National League is fun. We haven't even talked about how even if one of these teams misses on the division title, they still have a chance in the crowded wildcard race. So I'm really looking forward to tracking the National League, where it seems like we have five matchups between playoff contenders every single night the rest of the way. All right. Well, we'll stick a pin in that. We might come back to that National League wildcard and, and check in on that next week. That's a I am always eager for new segment ideas. So maybe we'll, we'll touch on that next week. But until then, it's a, a pleasure as always. Thank you. All right, thanks as always to Zach Cram. We'll be right back with Sean Yu to talk about the Players Weekend after these messages. Fact. Most Americans don't have a will. 20 years ago, that wasn't a shocking statement. You had to find a trustworthy attorney and pay them by the hour to draft your will. But these days, there's no excuse. LegalZoom has made it easy to create your own. More than a million people have used LegalZoom for their estate planning needs. It's National Make-A-Will Month at LegalZoom.com, so now it's your turn to take control of your family and assets with an estate plan. It starts with a will or a living trust. Don't know which one is right for you? No problem. LegalZoom's network of independent attorneys will advise you on what's best for you and your family. Plus, since LegalZoom's not a law firm, you'll never pay hourly rates. 
make things a lot easier on your family when you're gone. Check out LegalZoom's last will and living trust estate plans now during National Make-A-Will Month at LegalZoom.com. And for special savings, be sure to enter code MLB in the referral box at checkout. That's code MLB for special savings only at LegalZoom.com, where life meets legal. All right. My next guest is Ringer video man Sean Yu, who is here to talk about some of the Players Weekend jersey choices from both a nickname and aesthetic standpoint. This is a man with with strong opinions about such things, so I'm eager to hear them. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Bauman, thank you for having me on, and I promise I will keep the Yankee talk to a serious minimum. Well, no, let's steer into that, because... <laughs> when when I asked for people with strong opinions, you were very frustrated with the Yankees' choices in, in nicknames. You know, a lot of it has come down to how I feel about the Yankees right now and is that the there's a lot of potential with these guys in terms of personality and just general charisma, but a lot of them just end up being very boring, which is the case for their uh, player nickname jerseys. And I, that might be a, a boon product, but a lot of these are pretty weak. You know, like, Half of the team is just their last name with like J.A. Happ being Happer. Like you're adding an E.R. to his last name. Chad Green is Greeny. These are obvious nicknames. And I feel like the Yankees, especially one of the bigger franchises in the major league, has not tried for Players Weekend. It's frustrating, but I also don't really think it's a uh, a problem that's specific to the Yankees because this is just this is just what they I mean. So many of my frustrations with baseball <laughs> are and baseball players is that it's based in like these guys are famous and in the public eye because they're good at sports. Sure. And many of them have just not developed a personality beyond uh, beyond being good at sports. Like being able to throw hard is not really a personality trait. And that's how you get a league full of nicknames. Uh, like uh, like Happer and Greeny and whatever, like with uh, EY or S on the take this one, Mike Trout, the biggest baseball player, the best baseball player in a long, long time, and his nickname is Kid with Five Eyes. Kid, yeah. I mean Mike Trout. I mean, I, I'm I'm partial to the to the Millville Meteor nickname. Yep. Um. Which and if if Trout doesn't want to put it, you know, make that his uh, uh, part of his persona, so that that you know, that's certainly his decision. Um. Some of these guys do have uh better nickname. You know, Gary Sanchez with with the Kraken is a it's great is a nickname. nickname. Um. Although I'm personally uh, partial to L. Gary for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like L. Gary a little more as well. But some of these, it's just like these are not professional creative people so they're going to give each other this you know boring nicknames based on the same uh template and obviously it's uh, you know i'm looking at happer and i'm thinking about how how much the same that would be in in hockey and how much more boring nicknames are there so it could be (laughs) it could be a little bit worse and i just look at the downside of of, like josh donaldson bringer of rain yeah Is that the worst nickname in Ugh, sports? It's it's rough. It's not great. <laughs> it is not great. I will say though, there are some nicknames if we really want to get into it that in in my hours of research last night, I've come across that uh people went above and beyond and I and I really appreciate their their effort for it. Give me a couple. Seth Lugo, Puerto Rican. He, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. He's a part Puerto, Puerto Rican, and I think it's great. We talked about this uh, last night, but Brad Boxberger takes the cake. He is emoji box and emoji burger for his last name, which I think is just uh, phenomenal. Let, let me tell you how much I love that. I had not bought a piece of Major League Baseball apparel since I remember exactly <laughs> what it was. It was a Carlos Ruiz jersey Whoa. in 2011 when I was still in grad school. Uh that was the last piece of MLB apparel that I bought until I pulled the trigger on a Brad Boxberger jersey when that came out last week. That's how much I love. And like, I just wish it's, it, and obviously there's, that takes a specific confluence of, of, of circumstances, but like, it's just so it's playful. It's creative. I feel like that's sort of the, the atmosphere that they really ought to go with, with this. Totally. And uh, there are a few that I have on my list that kind of just stick out for me in terms of like, I don't know what they were doing, but I really enjoy it. I mean, um, Emilio Pagan 
could have gone somewhere crazy. He just went Emilio with five O's. Emilio, which is from mm-hmm. The Night of the Roxbury, which is a great movie. And I feel like him wearing that jersey, he'll get a lot of people screaming that, which is great. Carl Edwards Jr., String Bean Slinger is a great one. Oh, I think that's trying a little hard. Oh, I actually don't uh, like Oh, that. interesting. Uh, you'll yeah. like this. I wrote this down and highlighted it just for you. Chase Utley, Silver Fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hunter Pence underpants Jason Kipnis dirtbag and I, I'm thinking it's just because he gives off a vibe of a dirtbag this guy just kind of looks like a dirtbag but great nickname uh, Wei In Chen they they used the phonetic for his name Wei In mm-hmm. as in W-E-I-G-H-I-N and I think it's great and there are a lot of puns that in my research that I've come across um some great, some not great, and I'll and I'll read some off now, and I'll and I'll he- I want to hear what you have to say. Marco Estrada, Estratosphere. Not yeah, bad. that's okay. Andrew that's Triggs, right. Trigonometry. That one I like a lot. That one's solid. Uh, Sean Manaya, Manihilator. That's okay. Michael Waka, Wacamole. Not bad. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm just I'm doing the meh. For most of these, with Andrew Triggs as, as the exception, because we love us some Andrew Triggs on the Ringer MLB show. How about Trevor Bauer, Bauer outage? That's fine. I mean, it's I feel like the whole thing about Trevor Bauer is he isn't as clever as he thinks he is. So, I mean, but that's that's his Twitter handle, too. So Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's been around. Um, this one caught my eye, and I think it takes the cake in terms of the the pun selection. Uh, Eric Fetty, Fettuccini. That's that's good. Nat's that's, pitcher. I, I saw it and I was like, "This is this is a good good pun." Uh, let me let me give you a couple. Uh, Harleen Garcia, Harleen the Marlin. Yes, is, uh, love that. Yeah, I also love speaking of Miami Yonder Alonso going and there's like a a whole uh, a group of Latino ball players from Greater Miami Yonder Alonso who is Manny Machado's brother in law. Like those guys are Gio Gonzalez is sort of in this group too. Uh, but Yonder Alonso went with Mr. 305, which as a, a huge fan of Mr. 305, a.k.a. Mr. Worldwide, a.k.a. Armando Christian Perez, a.k.a. Pitbull. Love it. I love that. Love it. Um, Tony Watson going with Tone Ranger and Brett Cecil as Squints. Squints is good. With the glasses and uh, Shane Carl of the Atlanta Braves going with Sugar. I, I love Sugar Shane as yes. a... It's a, you know, boxing fans might know Sugar Shane Mosley that I, it, it just rolls off the tongue. Like that's a, that's a good uh-huh. nickname. It flows. It flows. Now one that doesn't flow that I saw that confused me, Brad Hand, protein shake. I'm looking at that. I'm like, what is this? Does this guy just drink protein shakes constantly? Is that his thing? Is that is a very broish thing to do. Maybe it's redundant. I don't know. John Ryan Murphy, also choir boy. I don't know where that comes from, but I kind of like that one. Yeah, it's a it's a good one. What do you think of of the the designs? Because I think like the 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 jerseys all sort of being on the same template, rather than something wild. Like you think about the Turner the or the Turner had the clock uniforms from yep. the from the nineties. Like they could have gone a lot wilder with this. Um, but there are some there are some highlights. Some I think the twins with the sky blue. Like I love a, a sky blue jersey and the way they've integrated multiple colors into that. Um, the Astros sort of had a light blue that did last year. They didn't, it didn't really line up with anything else in their color scheme. They fixed that. They did. Gone yep. to something more like a Navy. Um, I, my favorite thing in this whole aesthetic linguistic setup is the, is the color of purple that the Rockies have on their caps. I want, I want to tattoo that color all over my person. It's, it's the best color out there in American sports right now. I, I totally agree. And that's the one that stuck out because everyone else had a, a tint of orange, blue, uh, a yellow, or that that grayish uh, yellow combination that a few teams had. But yeah, that, that Rockies purple really stands out. And their jersey with the hat really sticks out. But um, yeah, I, I, I wasn't as thrilled at the jerseys this year. I think they definitely, like you said, definitely did make improvements to it. It is a weird combination of like retro looking jerseys with um, a more hip minimalist logo and bright colors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what they were really aiming for with this look, but part of the problem, and, and this is my only criticism of the Rockies, like the the color of purple that they use is so good. I almost don't care. 
but there isn't enough contrast in a lot of these hats and a lot of these hats are just two colors and, and in in many cases it's it's two different shades of blue for instance and there's just not enough contrast to really see the logo which is why i think the twins look is is really good because they uh they incorporate the red and the blue uh in the hat so you can see the logo better um and there are some some cases where it works like the the green and yellow of the oakland athletics how many times have we said that that green and yellow color combination Mm -hmm. is this works so well from an aesthetic standpoint but yet washout in like you know, like the if the Royals crown, if the crown on the Royals logo was gold, for instance, that would be an A plus hat. Same with the Mariners. Like, you right, just, add a little like, more tin instead of fully fleshing yeah. it out as one to two color palettes. Yeah, it's it's cool. I like that they do this. I like that they give the the players like there's a I mean, but there's a certain extent to which this sort of feels like like your boss letting you wear jeans on Friday. <laughs> You know, the fact that this is top down sort of limits how cool it can be. And there are some uninspired aesthetic choices, I guess. I'm totally with you. uh, But I will say, uh, away from the jerseys, the one nice thing um, to put a nice cap to to this conversation is the fact that um, some players went above and beyond and wanted to uh, let a message out with with the nickname of their jerseys. And one player in particular um, that that in my research I found and I was I thought it was really touching is uh uh Tiger second baseman uh Nico Goodrum who on on the back of his jersey says JJ Mumford and when I first saw it I was like why I was like that's strange and uh when I googled it I found out that um he's doing this in honor of a family friend of his who lost two of their younger sons in a car accident. They both played baseball, Jarrett and Jalen Mumford. They were teenagers when they passed away 2 years ago. Um and they both Jarrett had just started playing uh college at Alabama State and Jalen uh according to this article was a blossoming baseball player and uh Nico's doing this thing. He's trying to keep their memory um intact every time he plays and I and when I saw that I was like this is kind of what sticks out in players weekend is players Mm -hmm. taking advantage of this opportunity and this um, platform they have to share a message that that means a lot to them. Yeah. And it's the, you know, you think about like the NFL sort of tried that with the, the cleats, letting people write on their, their cleats, you know, it's, it's nice. Like this is mostly fun, but it, but it is cool to see players, you know, go to, uh, you know, a more serious, more, Mm -hmm more emotionally uh, evocative place with uh, with some of the messaging. Um, real quick, you got any Yankee thoughts? You settled in for the for the wild card now? Oh, man. It's going to be a long rest of the season. Um, Severino did not look great against the Mets last night, and um, it's a lot of question marks heading in. The wild card chase is going to be very interesting. The one note I did see, which was interesting, is that the Mariners and the A's, who are both, uh, I believe, the closest wild card spots, mm-hmm. play each other. I believe nine more times, something like that. And I and I think that bodes well for the Yankees. But yeah, you got to feel safe. They're going to beat up on each other. Exactly. So come time wild card, we'll see what happens. Uh, Zach Cram made a funny. I had, a, I think he had a funny tweet, or maybe it was a Slack that. Who would have thought Lance Lynn could have be, would be the starter in an AL wild card game? Me, I thought this. <laughs> when will Lance Lynn get respect? I, I know, I know. You love Lance Lynn. I love Lance Lynn, and the fact he's on the Yankees, I love him more. But we shall see what happens when he takes the mound in a potential wild card match. All right, thanks, Sean, for for coming on. Uh, please stay tuned to this podcast for more Lance Lynn news as, as he continues to turn the AL wildcard race all on his own. But all right, thanks for coming on. We'll be back with Ben Lindbergh after this. Many thanks. All right, I'm joined by a familiar guest, Ben Lindbergh, but with an unfamiliar recording technique. Usually we use some sort of internet-based software to record our segment of the podcast. Today, though, we've decided to tie two soup cans together with a string and have Ramon Laureano throw one from my home in Michigan to Ben's home in in New York. So if the sound quality is different, uh, that's why. So thanks to Ramon Laureano. Is that throw better than or worse than than the Cespedes throw from a couple years ago? To me, it was slightly worse because of the trajectory of the throw. Like, I guess just physically it had to be like this, but it was sort of a rainbow. Like, it was very uh, a high arcing kind of throw, whereas I like the sort of 
Ichiro from the outfield that's just like a line drive that somehow keeps going and going and going. This one was a, a bit more of a, a parabola, but it was still incredibly impressive. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think part of that is just like in order to get keep a ball in the air long enough to travel 320 feet, you have to put some arc on it. And I think yeah. the the accuracy of hitting the the first baseman in this case or the, the catcher in Cespedes' case uh is made more difficult by adding that other dimension in there. But this, Mm -hmm. I I also think like the Cespedes throw, I think the first angle I saw of that was from behind home plate. But this one, the first one I saw was over the outfield wall. I think the left center field camera. So seeing it from behind, just giving you that true perspective of how far away that is made it look incredible. And everything that preceded the Loriano throw was more impressive than what preceded the Cespedes throw, right? Because I haven't rewatched it recently, but he kind of, kick the ball around or let the ball roll around before he got to the ball. It's, it's one of those it. like cha- every left fielder looks weird chasing a ball in the corner just because yeah. it's bouncing so unpredictably. Right. Whereas Loriano actually made a pretty impressive catch before mm. the throw. So it was doubly impressive. We're not just talking about the throw, although we probably could fill a 10 minute segment with just that. But we're going to talk about the American League West race, which doubles as the race for the the second American League wild card and has suddenly become very interesting. I was just telling yeah. you before we started that part of me literally does not believe that Seattle took four or four from Houston in Houston. <laughs> I know. But they did. And now uh, their gap to the Astros is four and a half games. Uh, they're two and a half games behind Oakland, which came very, very close to just being one and a half games after a really thrilling ninth inning last night. So the Astros still have to be heavy favorites, right? But they yeah. they look vulnerable for the first time, I feel like, since mid-2016. Uh-huh. And that mid-game sweep, I think, was just classic 2018 Mariners because they won the first game by two runs and then the second game by three runs, and then they finished off the Astros with two back-to-back one-run victories. It's just vintage Mariners. That is how they are in this position. And I can't believe that we're talking about this either on August 14th, because it was one thing that the Mariners did this in the first half, and it was fun, and it still is fun, but I did not expect it to continue this long. And with the A's, I mean, I was somewhat high on the A's coming into the season, perhaps not as high as our buddy Mm -hmm. Zach Cram. Yeah, we're never going to hear the end of that. (laughs) No, but I mean, I picked them as my surprise team too in our preseason staff post, but I think even in that post, I said, well, they're my surprise team because it would surprise me if they actually Mm -hmm. made the playoffs. Like I can see it, it's conceivable, but I don't expect it to happen. And it has. And yet under the surface, I don't know that things have played out all that differently from what we expected, not just to be the wet blanket guy who's citing run differential, but it's there. The Astros have a better run differential than every team except the Red Sox. And it's pretty close between those teams too. The Astros, as we speak, have outscored their opponents by 195 runs you have to scroll quite a ways down the run differential leaderboard to come to these other teams they're competing with. The A's are 10th in baseball with a a plus 66. And then the Mariners, you have to go all the way down to 18th because they have been outscored by 23 runs. They are trying to do the 2007 Diamondbacks thing of Mm -hmm. making the playoffs despite being outscored, which is difficult to do. Yeah. And this is something that you and I have disagreed a little bit on. And I, I don't, Maybe disagree is too strong a word, but I remember us having a similar conversation about the 2016 Rangers who uh, outperformed their run differential by something like 13 games. And And the 2012 Orioles. Mm -hmm. And we were all the downers throughout those whole season. Oh, it's not going to last. It's not going to continue. And it kept continuing and it kept lasting. And uh, not that we were rooting against them, but it was like, I thought I understood how baseball worked. And this is not how I thought it worked. I don't know. I kind of think this is how baseball works. That baseball is so, is sort of inveterately unpredictable. That yes, the and the reason that these cases like the 2016 Rangers and the 2018 Mariners, who I still don't think are going to make the playoffs at this point, mm-hmm. but it's close enough that that we're having this conversation. The reason that they stand out is because they are rare. Like we think of something, and this is the. 538 problem with the uh, election uh, win probability or the Super Bowl win probability in that Patriots Falcons Super Bowl where everybody's saying, oh, this, you know, this had a 97 percent chance of of uh, of happening and then it didn't happen. What good is our stats? What good is win probability? Well, no, this just illustrates that, you know, a 97 percent chance of something happening. 
is one in 30. And you, mm-hmm. there are so many events, so many team seasons There are 30 team seasons every year. So it feels like we ought to have one of these flukes every year or two. It's just, if you just look at the league, then you're going to have one of these flukes, but picking which one it's going to be in advance is, is what makes all of this unlikely. If that makes any sense. I, yeah, I think that makes sense to you. I don't know if that's going to make sense to the listeners. <laughs> No, I, I know what you mean. If if you have a an accurate prediction model and it says there's a 97% probability of something happening, then 3% of the time it should not happen. And that's good. That means that you're not necessarily wrong. So I see what you're saying. And sometimes it can last for a full season. Rarely does it last the next season. So, yes. you know, there was all this talk about, oh, well, the 2012 Orioles, the 2016 Rangers, they just know how to win or it's their manager and they can just get more out of the roster than anyone else could. And then the next season, they don't do that anymore. They don't win all the one run games and they don't make the playoffs. So I don't know what you want to say about the 2019 Mariners. I think things will probably not work out as well, although that's 20 Jerry DePoto transactions in the future. So who knows what that team will look like. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I just look at this roster and this feels like a better roster than a, a minus 20 run differential team. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like in a weird way, I think their, their run differential is underperforming what it looks like their true talent ought to be, but their record is far overperforming. I certainly don't think yeah. this is, this team ought to be 18 games over 500 just based on the talent they have. And I think no. they've got a lot of the a lot of the hallmarks of a team that'll outperform its run differential. Certainly yeah. Edwin Diaz, like, <laughs> Diaz will help you win a day. lot of, yeah, they'll, he'll, he'll help you win a lot of one run games. Yes. I don't know if he'll survive this season, but uh, he is doing his part. That is for sure. Yeah. One of the things that can help you exceed your run differential is a good bullpen. And they have had a good bullpen really rebuilt kind of on the fly over the winter, but also getting dominant Diaz back and just perhaps running him into the ground, that's a, a pretty good way to win one run games too. To me, the the A let's just talk about the A's for a little bit. The best thing about them sort of feels like their lead. I don't know. I was trying to put together an argument like what's the exceptional thing that they do? And mm-hmm. with the Mariners, it's it's Diaz and they've got a couple of really scary bats with Nelson Cruz and Mitch Hanniger and uh I mean, Mike Zanino is going to post a 270 OBP, but he's got a lot of power and he's come up with a lot of key home runs in the past week or two. What is what is the exceptional thing for for Oakland? Because it feels like they're a better team, but is it just that they're balanced? Because Matt Chapman is really the only position player who really jumps off the page at me. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it is just being fairly well-rounded. And I think that's it's kind of like with a player. One of the ways that a player can go under the radar is if he's good at everything and not necessarily leading the league in any category, but not trailing everyone in any category either. And the A's are kind of like that. I think there aren't that many positions where they've had to deal with just totally sub-replacement production all year. I mean, just kind of looking at their lineup... Yeah, Chapman is really the only great hitter. I guess Chapman and, and Chris Davis. Chris Davis are is hitting about as well, but it's the difference yeah. between best defensive third baseman in baseball and a right. DH. <laughs> yeah, but there aren't any zeros in that lineup, really. I mean, Luke Roy hasn't been great, and Marcus Simeon's kind of just an average player, and Matt Joyce wasn't great when he was healthy. But, you know, there's no just position in that lineup that is just totally dragging down the team day after day. So I think it's partly that they've obviously had a really effective bullpen too, and uh, not necessarily with a lot of names that we would have expected to be as good as they've been coming into the season. Lou Trevino, anyone? And uh, Yusmero Petit is doing his thing again. I will never get tired of the Yusmero mm-hmm. Petit experience. So it's just kind of, you know, good bullpen The starting rotation is perhaps on paper the least impressive part of this team. And so if they do get to the wildcard game, I guess you have Sean Mania starting that game. And then, you know, if you manage to get past the Yankees or your opponent in that game, I don't know that you line up very well with your ALDS opponent. I mean, the names that have been effective on this team, Trevor Cahill is good again. And Edwin Jackson, of all people, has a a 2.48 ERA right now and has actually been pretty effective. Not that effective, but pretty good. I mean, the production in that rotation is not coming from people 
you would have forecasted to be really good coming into the season. So I think whereas at the beginning of last year, we kind of looked at the A's and said, oh, they have a bunch of pretty good young starting pitching. That could be a strength of this team. By the end of that season, it was all about the good young position players, you know, Semyon, who can kind of field now, and Chapman, who's a star, and on and on. Olsen, you know, who hasn't quite followed up his success from last year, but still a pretty good bat. I mean, they have that core that is pretty decent, and they've found a bunch of pitchers, in some cases off the scrap heap, who've given them really good innings. Yeah, I wrote a I wrote about their promising young rotation. It looked like, and I didn't necessarily see an ace in that group, yeah. but I saw like a solid one to five or even one to six, and all of those guys, I think literally everybody that I wrote about except for Manaya, is either hurt or no longer in the organization or ineffective yep. or both, and I wonder if we're sort of underrating, maybe I'm underrating this rotation because the A's sort of have a history of they can, when I wrote about Manaya a couple weeks ago, uh, I brought this up that they've got a good defense and a huge ballpark, and it's very easy to pitch under those circumstances. Mm. And you can take a guy and just tell him, just don't walk everybody and you're probably going to be okay. And if you give up four runs and we'll probably, then Chris Davis and Matt Chapman and Jed Lowry for reasons passing understanding, will probably get you those runs back. And it's not hard to pitch under those conditions. And you just look at the numbers. And I think part of the problem is the names. Guys like Cahill and Edwin Jackson, Brett Anderson are like, you look at them and you think, I thought those guys were retired. Like Danny Hudson was pitching in the, in the AZL this week and Luke, uh, Luke Hochaver retired. And like, that's the kind of name that, that the A's are rolling out there to give them sort of average to below average performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, not a lot of strikeouts, but they're going for five, you know, five innings and, and uh, two or three earned runs. And that'll keep you in the game. And I wonder if that performance on this set of names somehow rings less impressive to us as that performance on, say, the set of names that the Colorado Rockies rode to the playoffs mm-hmm. last year. You know, uh, Herman Marquez and Antonio Senzatella, if they're, at least unknown quantities, then maybe you think about them as, uh, I don't know, like Kyle Kendrick or, mm. or, um, Joe Wyland or, or any, you know, think of, think about just quad a strike throwers who can pitch into a good defense. And mm-hmm. if those guys are young, I wonder if there's just something exciting about the unknown as opposed to we're just, you know, Edwin Jackson pitched pretty well last year and yeah. you're just looking at him as, as sort of a used up quantity and who is, somehow only 34 years old. So I do wonder if the familiarity of those names makes it seem like the rotation's worse than it is, which is not to say that it's good, but it's, I I think you you can get away with those, uh, with this rotation, particularly with this offense, this defense, that ballpark and that bullpen. Yeah, it's good enough. They're not the only team that has gotten good production out of players. Seattle, for instance. Yeah, Wade LeBlanc, right, who uh, I guess maybe has run into a bit of a wall, but he was giving them great innings for a while. So you do have to fill in in most cases. I mean, unless you're the Astros. And the Astros, a lot of the really effective pitchers on the Astros were, at times, guys we thought of in this group, right? I mean, Charlie Mm -hmm. Morton was one of those guys who was kind of just, you know, on the downside or hurt and not quite to the same extent as Edwin Jackson. Yeah, because the thing about, you think about Morton and McCullers, like the stuff was not, I mean, by the time Morton got to the Astros, the stuff was not the problem. The the durability was, and the same thing with McCullers. And and Keuchel sort of, by the time everybody knew who Keuchel was, he had had developed into that sort of, into a Cy Young winner, really. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know if that's, a completely apt comparison, but they mm-hmm. uh, they did take a lot of under the radar guys and, and, and make um, them better. Yeah. yeah. And they seem to be doing that too. And you know, now Mike Fires, I guess, is the the latest to join this group of, you know, perhaps unimpressive but fairly effective arms. So it seems like enough to get them there, you know, and that's important. And once you get to the playoffs, standard caveats about crapshoot supply and if you have a really good bullpen as they seem to and and some of those bullpen guys are kind of out of nowhere guys and other guys are just smart pickups you know Mm -hmm. someone like Blake Trinan who was expected to be a dominant closer and it didn't really happen for him in Washington right away and the A's pounced and got him and now he's doing that for them so it's 
kind of, you know, the way that the playoffs work these days, if you don't have that strong a rotation, that's kind of okay once you get to October. I mean, this is not a Yankees deep bullpen, but it's pretty effective. And so if they can get there and just throw Mania out there and Cahill and Jackson and a good bullpen, that's all you need to be competitive. Both of these teams, the Mariners and the uh, and the A's, have six more games against Houston. If you're Houston, which one do you think scares you more? I think the A's do. I I just, you know, we've talked about the Mariners exceeding their run differential, but that just does not seem like a, a repeatable skill, at least to the extent that they've done it this far. And, you know, I think that that is part of the difference here. Not only are the Astros a better team than both of these teams, but I think the Astros have an easier schedule from now until the end of the season. I think their uh, combined opponents for the rest of the season have a projected 494 winning percentage, according to Fangraphs. The A's and Mariners, respectively, are at 511 and 517. Maybe part of that is that they're playing each other, but that's not it entirely. So I think the Astros have an easier time of it from here through October. So I don't really expect them to need the schedule boost. I keep expecting them to run away with it and maybe it's too late for them to run away with it to the extent that we thought that they would. But yeah, and the injuries that the that the Astros have suffered. Like I'm just writing McCullers, Davinsky, Springer, Altuve, McCann, Jake Marisnik, who's sneakily hitting or sneakily slugging six eighty four in his past thirty one games after mm-hmm. going like oh for fifty to start the season. But all yeah. those guys are on the shelf right now. This is this feels like the lull that every even hundred win teams have, you know, every mm-hmm. every team swoons a little bit. So this feels like the time that you have to make up ground on Houston. Yeah, and the Astros were really lucky in that respect, at least pitching wise, for a while because until McCullers went on the DL, I think they had gotten through the whole season with just five starters, and no team has done that in a full season, I think, since the 2003 Mariners. So uh, the 2012 Red. Oh no, no, the Reds had one. Yeah, there was one like guy. One, yeah, that's right. so annoying. <laughs> yeah, so it's been like 15 years since any team has done that. I think over a full season, and that's really hard to do. And now McCullers is hurt, so that breaks that streak. But they've still been fairly fortunate pitching wise. And I mean, I think they are clearly the class of the division, and we expected them to be the best team in baseball coming into the year. Obviously, record-wise, they will not be, but I'm not sure that the day the playoffs start, I will necessarily think that they are any worse than even the Red Sox are. I think they're just a, a really great team. And it is fortunate, I think, for all of us that we have this to talk about now on August 14th, because that was the big concern coming into the season, was it's the era of super teams and the haves and the have-nots, and there are these big gaps between the good teams and the bad teams, and it's just going to be over before the season even starts. And that has been kind of the case in the AL Central. I think that is not surprising. And even in the AL East now, the Red Sox seem to have really pulled away and have a double-digit lead. But there is still this AL West race that we didn't expect to have. Obviously, the the NL is just a a dogfight everywhere. But the AL is at least giving us this one race or two races, really, if you count the, the wild card as a separate race. So I am thankful that we have even this to pay attention to down the stretch. All right. Well, if you can just hand your can back to Ramon and he'll <laughs> chuck that back over here, we'll uh, sure. wrap this up and and I'll talk to you again next week. All right. And that'll just about do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach Cram, Sean Yu, and Ben Lindbergh for joining me on the show this week. Thanks to Yasmani Grandal, Brad Boxberger, and Edwin Diaz for providing us with stuff to talk about. Thanks to Bobby Wagner and Jim Cunningham for producing today's episode. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the games, and we'll see you next time.